Are you an ambitious, driven entrepreneur starting to feel overwhelmed, maybe a little trapped by your business? Well, I have a solution for you. It is the five-day bottleneck to breakthrough challenge, where in an hour a day, we will give you the roadmap, the blueprint, the treasure map to where you can find yourself with more free time, more freedom of money, and a more valuable business. Hope to see you soon www.bottlenecktobreakthrough.com. Welcome to The Real Bottom Line, the podcast for entrepreneurs featuring entrepreneurs. The stories that other entrepreneurs have learned about their lessons and their technical expertise, they are very inspiring. And so I'm glad that you're joining me today, your host, Wendy Brookhouse. I help entrepreneurs find, grow, and keep their wealth. This is The Real Bottom Line, where we tell entrepreneurial stories about true grit and perseverance from frontline business owners themselves. Now, let's get started. So today on The Real Bottom Line, we're going to dig into the importance of amplifying your voice. And my guest is Corey Poirier, the founder of Blue Talks and the Speaker Program. His businesses are focused on helping people find their voice, develop their key messages, and then get paid to speak to become the expert. Hello and welcome, Corey. Well, uh, thank you so much, Wendy. Uh, Thanks for having me here. And uh, thank you as well for such a a gracious introduction. And it's exciting to be here. I am super pumped. I have watched your story from afar for years and we've had brief interactions, but I'd love for our listeners to learn. How did you become the speaker guy? Well, so it's actually interesting. I started speaking 22-ish years ago uh, after, you know, we're, we're both, uh, I'd lived in the, the same city as you for a long time, and that's where it all got started, in fact, Halifax, Nova Scotia. And uh, how it started is one night I got tricked into performing stand-up comedy. I know that doesn't make sense, tricked into, but uh, I actually had written a stage play for the Atlantic Fringe Festival. Okay. and. I, we ran that. I was the director. I didn't want to be on stage, terrified of being in front of people. So I wrote and directed it. And we had six actors, one sprained his ankle. And so I had to write an extra part to, to help him with extra time so he could make his costume changes. He still finished the play, but I had to write just characters, like some j- random characters. But the problem was all the actors were filled, like they couldn't do any more characters. And so the only other person that knew the lines was the writer director. So I had to write myself a part. Now, I actually wrote myself a part where I could walk it with my back to the audience. It was like, he was a guy, like one of the characters was the the main character was a busker. So one of the characters was like a guy just going out and saying, play some Bob Dylan for me and throwing a penny at him type thing. And so it allowed me to have my back to the audience, which is how, and I was just covered in sweat. The audience didn't even see me. I was covered in sweat. Uh, But what happened was I did the play. And at the end of it, one of the actors said, you know, I know you weren't comfortable being on stage. Did you want to get more comfortable with that? And I said, what are you thinking? And he said, well, I'm going to do a stand-up comedy workshop at the, well, I'll say the local university, but Dalhousie. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to see if you want to come with me. And I th- said, that sounds terrible. Yeah, okay, I'll do it. Because I my thinking was at the time, I have to overcome this fear if I'm ever going to keep staying in the entertainment world. But at the same time, even if I don't overcome the fear, the cool part is about a workshop is it doesn't mean I ever have to get on the stage. I can. I was a writer. I can just go learn from another comic about writing. So I just looked at it like I got nothing to lose. But the trick into stand-up comedy was the third week, we were told we were going to go watch people entertain us. And we found out at Showtime that we were, in fact, the entertainers planned for the night. 
And so now the decision was, do you go on stage? Do you run up, run up the front door or do you do what I try to do, which was go to the bathroom and find the exit window. So they wouldn't know I tried to run at the front door. Uh, there was no exit window. I came back out at a 15 people that had showed up that were in the workshop. Eight had walked at the front door. So there were only seven left. Uh, you kind of weeded people out. I always say the people that were meant to stay did stay because yeah. I never, I only saw one of those guys ever again in my life. So uh, six of the seven, interestingly, Wendy, perform stand-up comedy full-time still to this day. I'm the only one that didn't continue performing stand-up. I would put those numbers against any workshop ever. Like the odds of that, it was huge. And so uh, most of them, like Mark Little was the name of one guy. I uh, was in Halifax. He won the Great Canadian Laugh-Off. Uh, Candy Palmiter, who passed away. But Candy was a big force in the Canadian comedy scene. Anyway, you can go to uh, Bill Wood, who was in Picnic Face and a whole bunch of other troops. They were all there. And so we did this uh, comedy workshop, went to this club, and I decided to stay. And I went up first, which, you know, sometimes I still go, what was I thinking? Uh, people always ask me why I got on the stage. And I said, it's because I had this vision uh, within a quick, like in a heartbeat, I had this vision of me being a guy sitting at the bar as an old dude, an old man, looking at the stage, pointing at another person performing stand-up saying, I was going to do that one night, but I wish I would have, but I never. Mm -hmm. And the fear of the thinking about that was bigger than the fear of getting on the stage. Now, if you would have asked me, was the fear bigger, you know, of that same scenario after I got off the stage, like would I agree that I should have, you know, getting on the stage wasn't as big a fear? I would tell you probably you're you're crazy, meaning I should have just lived with the vision and accepted it because it was so terrifying. But I got on stage, told two jokes, uh, did not know that the mic wasn't even turned on yet. And so bombed horribly, got no laughs. And uh, we got the mic turned on once we found out what was going on. And I told the two jokes again, and they still bombed. So I've said that I think I'm the only comic within 10 minutes that's bombed with the same material twice. And this was a long down the rabbit hole, but that's how I got into speaking. And to finish how I got kind of quote unquote named that speaker guy, this is, all relates back to Nova Scotia and even Atlanta, Canada. But what I noticed as I was starting, to, once I started getting into speaking and doing a lot more speaking, I noticed that um, when I would go to events, people would try to remember my name and they would say, oh, wait a minute, you're you're um, you're that speaker guy, right? That speaker guy. And eventually I thought, well, it's good to be known as the one. It's like when somebody says, oh, you're the book or uh, like somebody in finance. Oh, you wrote the book on it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no better place to be because you're the one. Like, in fact, I've registered websites over the years. This is the book.com. And uh, my speaking program, we literally for years called it thespeakingprogram.com. Yeah. And so the idea being that, oh, it's the only one. It's the one you need to know about. So that speaker guy is the guy you need to know about was kind of the idea. So I even have thatspeakerguy.com is my website and my email address have, is, even has it in it. And so that's how it, it came about. It was just literally people kept saying it. So I finally embraced it and said, OK, yeah, I guess I am that speaker guy. There's there's so much to unpack with that story, but I think I feel confident I'm going to award you best origin story ever uh, for how your business got started. Yeah, I, I love it. Uh, so the couple of things I, I took out, fear of regrets versus the fear of pushing through your comfort zone. Um, I think as entrepreneurs, we may be in that zone a lot. How did like what was your picture of your future that you knew you might have a regret if you didn't do that? Like, how did you push through other than just that one regret? 
Uh, you know, I, I feel like, I mean, so, and that's happened more than once. Like that's happened since too, yeah. in other cases, the vision, I mean, like I said, in one respect, the, the, the physical vision was me visualizing me as an older guy. Now, the interesting part is it was just a vision of me as an older guy, meaning it didn't look like I'll probably look as an older guy. I mean, I had hair then and I never anticipated that I would be able to shave it because of clients I had it when I was in the sales world who said, if you ever shave your hair, I won't buy from you. Like this is, you know, it's amazing how far we've come. But I can still, I won't say it, but I can still tell you the exact name, first and last name of the client who first said that to me that worked for the government at the time. Mm-hmm. And she flirted with me a lot. And she said, it must be so warm out there wearing a suit, you know, and long or thick, I mean, black hair, you know, and, and all that stuff. And I said, if I had my way, I would shave it right now. And she goes, well, I'd never buy from you again. Just as simple as that. So I heard that a few times and started thinking, I guess it's just not in the cards. And so my point is, is that, of course, when I was visioning, I was visioning me with hair, right? So so I didn't vision me properly. It was just a vision. But I mean, there was that part. So the first part is the vision. And, and the vision was what said to me, okay, I'm going to probably regret this. And I, I think I inherently knew, I know now for a fact from the amount of interviews I've done, but I think I knew inside that people regret regrets more than they do uh, not doing it. Yeah. So like, so for example, people would rather do something and fail and not regret that they didn't try than do something, uh, sorry, than not do it at all. Even though, even though here's the catch, most people still won't take the action. Even though they, like, I think from what I've seen in interviews, uh, the number one regret in the world is I could have, but I didn't. That's bigger than fear. But in the moment, here's the catch with that, in the moment, fear is more real because it's in the moment. So it's easy to go, you know, I'll regret that later. And when you get to that age and you regret it, you're like, oh my God, like, why didn't I do that? Mm-hmm. But the, the challenge with that is it's easy in the moment when you're terrified to say, but I can still do it tomorrow. So what's interesting to me when I think about pushing through the comfort zone, that was your comfort zone then. Right. And so now you're the speak that speaker guy and you've spoken lots of times. Do you still have any twinges of fear or like worry about stuff when you're getting on a stage or have you managed to conquer all of that? So interestingly, because even to to tag onto what you said about how did I push through it? I will say there's no sexy answer because back then at the comedy, I pushed through it by just being covered in sweat and forcing my way into the stage with all the heartbeats going and saying, I might even die up here on stage. (laughs) Cardiac arrest in my future. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So that, that was, that was the the first minute of it. So then what I did later on to help with those fears, and then I'll answer your the bigger question, but what I did to help with those fears, like people always ask, what's the first thing I do when I go on stage now before mm-hmm. I start speaking? And it used to be different. I used to try to meditate off kind of in the corner and just kind of be alone and meditate for a couple of minutes or whatever before I go on stage. But I found a, uh, a flaw with that is that the meeting planners start getting worried. Because they're like, where's the ad? Or even if you tell them, they're just like, uh, but does he realize we're getting so close to time? Like I found it didn't work because it, it added stress that didn't need to be there for them. So I found a new solution and it's what I do during most talks. I try to remember to do it even when I'm doing something like this. I don't always. But what I do is I think of somebody or the or what they said, but somebody who said to me that something I did changed their life for the better. And so it could be like a single mother that came up and said, I'm so glad you shared your story about being raised by a single mother and how when you were younger, you fought with her a lot and you did this and that. But then eventually you guys became really close. And now, you know, you're super close. And it makes me realize that 
even though I think that my kids aren't going to be happy with me later in life, maybe like you, they'll actually become my best friends. And so I remember things like that. Like, it, it could be like, um, you said this, and this is how this is going to change my life. So what I do is I remember when somebody said that I impacted them in a positive way, that's what I think of before I walk on the stage. And the idea there is it reminds me to get out of my head about, oh, God, I'm in front of an audience and realize I'm doing this for them, not me. Ooh. And that's that's I find that when people say to me, you know, what's the way to get over the fear of this or that, especially speaking. Um, and I will say there's other things you can do. For example, know your topic inside and out. Mm-hmm. Be passionate about it. There's lots of other things you can do. But I feel like reminding yourself of why you're doing it in the first place and what could happen as a result of you doing it takes it out of it being about this person here. And I find that we're stuck in our own head. And I don't want to call it ego because it's not like you're doing it thinking, look at me go. It's the opposite kind of, but it's still an ego thing. Like we're battling our ego going, "Uh oh, what if I try to protect ourselves? Yeah. What if my ego gets bruised up there? And I will tell you, Wendy, what I've discovered, it's a fear of the unknown, not a fear of rejection. The okay. unknown. We don't know what's going to happen because you could knock it out of the park, but you don't know that. So your fear of what could happen. Uh, but to circle back to your question about do I still get the fear now? I'll say first, I'll say yes. And the amount of fear is going to be dependent on how big the circumstance is. So, for instance, if uh, if I'm doing like we do our um, virtual boot camp, even yeah. you would think, OK, there's not much fear in that. It's like a Zoom call or like the interview like this. But I get the butterflies. I get all that stuff for that event. It's a three-day event, and I'm always going to be like, how are people going to receive this? And 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 I'll be honest with you, a lot of people wouldn't share this, but the boot camp's free. We want to change lives at the boot camp. We don't care if you sign up for a package that we offer halfway through the boot camp. But at the same time, in my head, I'm always going, is my offer going to be received okay? Or is somebody going to go, oh, I can't believe he's making an offer, even though we do the whole thing for free and we are like the least... Uh, like we literally tell you, if it's not for you, it's not for you. Like, it's not one of those, you know, you go to some events and you feel like there's people at the door that are blocking you from leaving. If they make an offer, it's not that, uh, but still I get the nervousness of how's my offer going to go, even though it's two days later. And so I have to come out of that because again, I have to realize this is not for me and, but it's my ego that gets in the way. So it depends on the nature of the event, uh, doing podcast interviews, rarely get nervous, uh, when it comes and, and same with zoom. When it comes to live events, when I said it depends how big it is, it really depends on, and this is, I've had to learn this over time about myself. It depends on what's the, I'm trying to think of this, the, the cost, uh, not, not even the cost of the outcome, but like if you think about, for example, doing a TEDx talk, yeah, it's nerve wracking for most because they realize it's a legacy talk. Mm. They don't have control over it. If they mess up during the talk, TEDx can still air it if they want and so on and so forth. You have little control over it. So it's, you're more fearful of it because their costs are great to what could happen. Then if you go to like an event where it's a 10 person uh, retreat and you know, you're there for three days, then you have, I have less fear because you have three days to build a relationship. So if some faux pas happens, then people understand it more. And then when you go to an event, and here's where it gets really weird. If I go to an event with, it used to be, if I go to an event with a hundred people to speak, I'd be more nervous than if there was 5,000 people. Mm. that's where it gets really intriguing. And now that's not, I've discovered over years, that's not the case for everybody. Some people can speak in front of a hundred without a fear ever. And they get in front of a thousand and they almost lose their marbles. Some people uh, struggle to speak in front of five, but can speak, could speak in front of a hundred thousand at a stadium. And so, so it's hard to say it's the same for everybody, but for me, at least 
here's how I'm going to answer that big question is I still get nervous. However, uh, the extent of the nervousness depends on certain factors now where it never used to. Be. It used to just be I got nervous all the time. And I always worried about what if I lose the fear? Because we're always taught as speakers, the fear is a great thing to have. Yeah. Once lose it then it's like you're almost like conditioned to just deliver the talk and don't, no have no passion there or what have you i was fearful of that that's never happened with me uh, but i but i have to say uh you know i could if somebody was if i was at an event and somebody said corey can you come up and say something about that i can do that and i wouldn't freeze but i will say that here's the finish of this whole thing what's really interesting to me is that if i go to like a mastermind if I was at a mastermind with 10 people in a room and I'm not speaking, but it comes around and each person does an icebreaker, introduce themselves, I get full on terrified of that. And I can't figure out why. Oh, that's interesting. It reminds me of, I did Toastmasters years ago and I was totally comfortable delivering prepared speeches, but my off the cuff stuff is why I did Toastmasters so that I could train on that. It's fascinating. Yeah, and, and Toastmasters is the prime example of what you just said. When I first went to Toastmasters, I was a paid speaker for five years and my heart was almost on the floor. It was beating so hard to do a one and a half minute or whatever it was, one and a half or two minute icebreaker. Yeah. yeah. So that that's what I mean. Like that's the time still, I think the most nervous I get is when it's a small group and I'm not the person there to speak, but I have to do some sort of intro. In fact, I am on today on an event right after this interview and it's like, um, hundred people on zoom and, and it's basically about events, like how to land events and, and I'll be representing my event. And I'll be nervous to do that. They give you 45 seconds to say who you're looking for to come to your event to watch it and stuff like that. Amazing. Well, uh, I'd like to shift that on its head a little bit and talk about courage, because I look at the people who you have interacted with, the people who you call friends, the people you've interviewed, the people all those been stages with, and you look at them and they're like this who's who. And it's like, how did you ever get the courage to go up and talk to them and say, hey, uh, you should come on my stuff? How did you so, how did that start? Well, uh, another, this is where you get to name drop, Corey. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> and, and I'll start off with a, a big Canadian name. And it's the first one of the first ones, first big interviews that I did. And you said, how did I do that? And, and how did I get the courage? So uh, I'll first say I didn't have a whole lot of courage. So one of the first big interviews I did in person was Arlene Dickinson from Dragon Center. Okay. And uh, and I still got the picture of it's funny because I had hair then uh, I got the picture of us, her and I in, fr in front of CBC radio because she was doing an interview there. And then basically we jetted over to uh, Tim Hortons or vice versa. I can't remember which direction we went. And uh, I did the interview. It was it was July and I was I was wearing pants, you know, in a shirt versus like shorts or whatever. So I'm one of those people that uh, dark complected Acadian French. I'm going to sweat in the summer anyway. But add in the factor of interviewing somebody who you've you know watched on TV for a while or what have you. And so I was covered in sweat for an hour and a half of that interview. I was the interview couldn't have finished any sooner. I was just like, I need to get this one done. And and you know, and I kept commenting about it being July and man, it's so hot here. And it was so like the catch 22 is it was, but I was the only person in that Tim Horton sweating. And so it wasn't easy. And that was my first one. And part of me is like, why would I put myself through this when I don't have to? But at the same time. When I read the interview, like when I read all the insight I got from her and I went, wow, like you can get this insight from a one person business owner. But what I found that it's hard to find out from a small business is what it takes to get to and stay at the top. Like, I mean, like the top elite 1% of a certain industry. And that's what intrigued me by, for example, interviewing Arlene. Like she had the largest female-owned marketing company in Canada, sixth largest, I think, in North America at the time. Like, what can you learn from somebody who's 
A, competed against all the male-dominated marketing companies, but B, got to that level, uh, got onto a, a top hit TV show, and so on and so forth. And so I got intrigued by what I was learning, and that's what pushed me. So then what I did, to your point about how did it start, is I made a list of 100 people, like a dream 100 of who I wanted to interview. And I started showing people, I still remember this. I actually, on one of my TEDx talks, I shared this part of the story. I started showing people the list. And I said to my friends, now the, my friends that I grew up with, like most of us, just like myself had met, like, if we were lucky, maybe three celebrities in our life. Yeah. So the idea of interviewing multiples seemed out to lunch. So I said, how many of these do you think I'll be able to interview? And I think the highest guess was like 17, 15, wow. or 17. And at the end of a year, it was 93 of a hundred. I was a pit bull. I went all in and, yeah. and the names just put it in perspective were like uh, Jack Canfield, yep. you know, big, uh, like um trying to think of who was on that list. Mark Victor Hansen, both of them from chicken soup for the soul, uh, a guy named Dan Sullivan from strategic coach who I loved his yep. from afar. Uh, Darren Hardy from success magazine, Zig Ziglar, the late Zig Ziglar before his passing, you know, so these were big names, Trish Stratus from the wrestling world. And so I, so I put, and so by the way, out of the 93, I think at this point to this day, here's where it gets funny. I think about 97 or 98. So the so funny part is who left. Yeah. But that was 10 years ago. Yeah. Like it's wild how it's the bigger number, like the get to the small part is easy. But once you get to the hard ones, it's funny how hard they get. Like it's like well, the last the pounds. Of, well, and the last 10 pounds are the hardest to lose, right? It's the same yeah. idea. Well, um, the one standout because I'll, I'll full disclosure, two of the last three have passed away. So oh, I'm not going to do those interviews. No. The third one is Seth Godin. Oh, yes. He's the only He's the only standout. And and we've conversed like five times. He said, you know, not for me right now. So yep. like, I'm, I'm, I, it's going to happen. And I don't know when, but, but to the, you know, going back to the original point, I was terrified. I sweat, all the stuff was the case. Like it didn't change. Uh, at the time, uh, a lot of the interviews, which kind of in one way sucked, was a lot of them were audio only. Yes. You know, so like back then you weren't thinking about capturing video and it was harder to capture video. For sure. And so, and I was doing it for my magazine and then my podcast. Uh, so, and people like, uh, let's see, T. Harv Ecker or yeah. somebody I mentioned to you kind of off, or no, I guess I mentioned it on air, but Michael E. Gerber from the E-Myth. Yeah. And so most of them were audio since that time. I've managed to circle back and interview a lot of them at their home or what have you. And that's, that's pretty cool because then you're in their environment and you get different answers and a different energy. Uh, but yeah, to answer you in terms of making it happen, it was like pulling teeth. Like it was like the hardest thing. It was harder than speaking. I think once yeah. I get going at it, interviewing somebody who you're like, for when you first start and you don't spend a lot of time with what we'll call the thought leaders or celebrities, you think somehow they're different. Yes. Meaning like you think, oh, they're going to judge me or they've been where I haven't been or what have you. And then you start building relationships and realize it's they're just like when we hear that they put their pants on the same way as you or I. It's true. And I didn't I didn't believe it because I hadn't experienced it. You know, but since that time, I've gotten so comfortable. Like I was a huge fan of Biff Naked growing up, yeah. you know, and going and I've interviewed Biff now four or five times. And like, you know, when I interview her there's no nervousness. It's like it, talking to a friend, but it took a long time to get there. So I think our takeaway or my takeaway from, as I'm sharing this is that 10,000 hour rule. It took time to get to the point where the sweat still wasn't happening. And now I can't blame the July thing. Now I will say I still sweat in July, but I can know the difference if it's because of the interview or not. And it's usually not uh, a guy named Richard St. John wrote a book called eight to be great. Uh, one time I interviewed him and I thought it was fascinating because I had interviewed about 3,000 people at the time, Richard probably more than me. And I thought it was fascinating to put our both minds together and oh, see yeah. how stuff compared. And Richard told me his first interview was with Martha Stewart. 
at, at he, what he did was he went, was at a TED conference. Like he went to the TED conference every year, the main one and yeah. all the names go there. And he said, I realized if I want to start doing these interviews, I might as well just stand by the bathroom. They all got to go to the bathroom at some point. So that's where he stood. And he had a little hand recorder and he, his first person was Martha Stewart. And he said, Corey, like I almost melted waiting for her to answer the questions and figuring out what I was going to ask next. And he said, I was terrified every time he said, I'd go approach forget the guy's name, but I think it was like the founder of Oracle or something. And he said, like, he was terrified. He didn't want to be approached by people. He was nervous. And he said, and then I would go and I was terrified. And I'm thinking, like he said later on, why was I terrified? Like he didn't want to be around people. So it should have been an easy interview. But he said today, and this is what I'm bringing this up for today, he said I could jump in Oprah's lap and do an interview. Nice. It's comfort. Your business is making a profit. You're growing, but you may still feel like you don't fully have a grasp on how to make the best use of this success? Don't worry, you're not alone. Hi, I'm Wendy Brookhouse, creator of the Total Wealth Accelerator and host of this podcast. I've developed a quick and easy tool that will give you a detailed snapshot of where you're currently at in your business and wealth growth and how you can improve upon it. It's called your financial diagnostic score. It's completely free and you'll instantly get the results. So head over to TotalWealthScore.com right now and see where you can focus to grow your wealth. I'm going to go back to the 93 out of 100 in a year. And I'd like to link that back. In my opinion, or what I'm thinking about is the importance of big goals and then of believing in the why behind those goals so strongly so that you're like, whatever, that's just one no, I'm going to go get another one, right? Like, so... Talk to me a little bit about how you now share, shape your goals and what's your next BHAG, if you will, or big, hairy, audacious goal that you want to do. This is the stuff that nobody, I think, I feel very few people talk about when it comes to the world we're in. Like, you know, people maybe always achieving at another level, like trying to achieve at another level or type A personalities. But I, I'm starting to talk with this more because I think we need to bring it to the surface. But I've noticed a lot of high-level influencers. And again, I've had the opportunity to interview now for 7,000. So I got a pretty good rating, yep. a pretty good research study going. And I've noticed a lot of them don't like to talk about the fact that for a lot of us, whenever we like, we, we think, okay, I want to have this book in my hand. I can't wait till this book's in my hand. And then when it finally gets in our hand, we don't have the feeling we thought, and then we just go next. So like, it's like, oh, I can't wait till I buy the car, the plane or the house. And then they get it and go, oh. The anticipation becomes greater, like the anticipation, the time you're in anticipation feels better than when it actually happens. Yeah. And and in fact, a quote that I, I, I'd love to say I coined, but I feel like I must have taken this from somewhere at some point in my life, but I haven't heard anybody else say it this way, is that I, it's a question. The quote is a question of what if the journey instead is really the destination? Mm. And so for me, what I had to figure out is this is a great example because I have one of my books right here with me, the book of why and how. It's interesting you mentioned about why. And this book, I, I took me four years to write. I mean, not really four years to write, but four years before I released it. And it was the it was the first one that that really happened. That I thought the day I hold it in my hand, the angels are going to sing. Everything's going to change. Life's going to be different. Unicorns like will start dancing around. Exactly. It's the same way I thought when I jumped out of an airplane, it was going to be like this new awakening. And so I thought that's going to happen with the book. And by the way, I even foolishly then thought whenever I got it with a traditional publisher, because at first it was self-published, that it was going to happen. All these things as a kid, I thought once this happens, this is what changes. And it didn't. And so what happened, Wendy, is I went, you know, and I didn't really take time to enjoy the journey of writing it because I was waiting for the payoff. So what that did for me, I, I talked to my girlfriend literally about this last night, is instead of focusing on 
how can I make the destination matter more? Because the destination usually is only a minute. It's like, okay, you go to the mountaintop. Well, you're on the mountaintop. Maybe you stayed up there for a half hour. It's, I think, now, I think you got to be grateful. Like, I, I should be grateful that I was able to write a book when some people are struggling to pay the bills. Like, that I could have a book out with my name on it. I should be grateful for those things, yes. But I think that's still fleeting versus enjoying the whole entire process, writing the book, marketing the book, talking to people about the book, that kind of stuff. And so I feel like enjoying it is more important, the process, than actually the payoff. Now, having said that, how does that tie into my next goals? That's the challenge I have is setting goals that I'm going to, here's where it gets really meta is I'm going to, I set goals now to where I'm going to enjoy the journey, not because of the goal. So that gets hard because you have to think the goal further in, if you know what I mean, you got to think into the goal of what's the journey going to look like that I'm going to enjoy. So for example, I mean, and here's the other thing, and I don't mean to say this in a flippant way, like just an easy way to say this, but I've had some pretty magical things that I never thought were going to happen in my life. Like yeah. things that as a kid, even then when I had all these big dreams, like for example, Bob Proctor, uh, the late Bob Proctor who I was a fan of, I get to hold his 57 year old copy of Think and Grow Rich in my hand and read through it. I mean, like I never thought something like that would happen sitting in Les Brown's uh, living room, hanging out. Uh, but I mean, uh, and another one just happened this year is I got to go to the Troubadour, which I was a huge fan of the 80s music scene. And the Troubadour was on the Sunset Strip. I always wanted to play there. Well, I got to go there this year and interview Tommy Chong of Cheech and Chong. Oh, wow. Inside the Troubadour with only us there. I mean, so what I'm saying is looking at those kind of goals or going to Hawaii with my son as his first trip ever or uh, his first Halloween, we had him at Salem, Massachusetts, where the witch trials were, which is a pretty epic place to be. To be able to do some of those things, like when I was a kid, you know, for living in a small town, we were taught that you're lucky if you have one or two of those in your whole life. Right. And so now... And again, even those things, I enjoyed the journey of driving to Boston to, you know, all the stuff we did the weeks before we went to Salem and, and the night going out and going around with him and everybody going, look at this cute kid on Halloween more than just, oh, we did this. And so that becomes the new challenges. Again, how do I decide what are some epic things that I'm going to love the journey on versus just the payoff? Um, so this isn't really a goal, but as an example, we're going next month to a writer's retreat uh, with a guy named uh, Richard Evans, who wrote The Christmas Box. He has uh, 41 New York Times bestselling books, and we're going to learn from him about writing books. But I'm also going with my girlfriend, a chance, just her and I, not the kids, going to Utah. Both First time we've ever both been to Utah. Uh, so it'll be the journey about all that. Yes. Then it will be more about we went to a writer's retreat and in this place. So I don't know if that answered the question, but because you, you were asking specific goals, and, and, you know, specifically, I'm looking at what are those things that I'm going to love. So, for example, I want to do the seven wonders of the world. Mm. But I want to do them because I want the journey of not just arriving in Egypt. I want the journey of getting there and and meeting people along the way, meeting people near the pyramids and then leaving the pyramids and discovering something near the pyramids that most people don't talk about. And so that so that's one of mine. But again, I figured it out based on what do I what what sounds like a great journey getting there. That's awesome. It feels like a little bit about teaching yourself how to live in the moment and engage and be present. Um, and I think that is something that as entrepreneurs, we, we when we're type A or strivers, I think I've seen this a lot. You get the goal and then you go, okay, wow, I got there next. And so, and that I think is something that a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with is to to live in that moment of celebration, if you will, or recognition that you did make a serious milestone. This is something that you wanted to do when you were younger and now here's where you're at. 
I mean, I just passed 100th episode of my podcast and I went nutbar on celebrating that because I wanted to relish and cherish that because normally I would just go, okay, let's do number 101. Right. So I think that I think that's a lesson for entrepreneurs is figuring out how to live in the moment uh, of the journey. Well, and I will say this because it's good timing because it's here. I just this is a great example. I just received this plaque not that long ago in the mail or this this prize. And it's uh, from Success Magazine Emerging Entrepreneurs Award. And I when I was younger, like I have I don't know how many copies, but I have like conservatively 200 copies of Success Magazine. Like I back, back. Yeah. yeah I, I got it every month in the mail. And so like, you think like, and it was monthly. So you think about having 200 issues. Like I was in all in. And, um, and so, I mean, like, I think it was like 10 years or something or more anyway. So I have all the issues of when I was reading it. And so my, when I was reading it and following it, because it was changing my life, I'm like, someday, someday I'm going to be in that magazine. And so that was the, oh my God, when that happens, I'll have made it. And I shared a post on this the other day, actually. And what's interesting about it is. I thought it was going to be the wow moment. And I got a call, a text actually from a um, friend who used to be in one of my masterminds that I ran. And he said, Corey, uh, want to reach out because I'm working on a book and I'd like to get some advice around it. And what triggered it is I saw you on page 73 of Success Magazine. Now, I haven't even held up my hand yet. So like it's no? an issue. Well, it's, it's the May, June issue. So it's not even out. I'm waiting for it to come in the mail. I do not know how. He said, we get them a month early. I don't know how that happens. He messaged me in the 1st of April about the May issue that hasn't even been released. I don't, he said, we always get it early. So, uh, but so, and he sent me a picture. I have a picture of it scanned yeah. and it's now in the digital, it's on the website. So now I got a, a digital version, but I'm waiting for the print to come in the mail. Here's the takeaway for me. I was, I, so I was like, wow, exciting. Like, this is amazing. That thing I thought about 20, well, whatever it was, 18 years ago, or whatever, is finally come to pass. But what I realized, Wendy, is it came back to a quote I heard Jim Rohn say one time. And I'm going to paraphrase the quote and say, what I realized, and this is what my post was, is that it was never about being in the issue of Success Magazine or holding that award in my hand. It was about who I had to become as a person to be in Success Magazine or hold that award in my hand, which ergo goes back to the fact that it was always about the journey. Awesome. And it's also cool to have somebody message you and say, hey, just saw you in Success Magazine. But it, but it was never about that. And I thought it was. And by the way, the Jim Rohn quote, just to put it out there for people, Jim Rohn said something to the effect of, it's never about becoming a millionaire because once you do, you could give all the money away and it wouldn't matter. Yep. It's about who you have to become to become a millionaire in the first place. Right. And what, what I always add into that, because when we hear money and we think million dollars, it, not even really, it's not, not the thing it used to be anyway, because things cost so much more. But what he was really, I believe, saying is, to becoming an enlightened millionaire. Like, in other words, he's not just saying it's not about becoming a person with money. Like, yeah. that's not how I took his quote. I took his quote as you're striving to become a millionaire, but it's about uh, becoming more as a person. It's about personal development, investing in yourself. It's all those things yes. that you have to do to properly become a billion, or millionaire that's contributing to society, that's helping others, all those kind of things. That's how I took it. I called it enlightened millionaire in my head. Yeah. But that, to me, that's what it's about. It's about who do you become and what what do you look like once the journey's done? And it's because of all the things that happened on the journey. So for me, like I said, it was always about Success Magazine until it wasn't. And now I realize I'm a different person than that person that wanted to be in there. And it's because I strive for that even if the the feeling wasn't what I thought it was going to be once it happened. Well, I think it's also interesting too, as I, and I believe this to be true, you, you mentioned something about giving it away, right? Because once you've become the person 
who can become a millionaire, you can do it again. Right. Right. That's, so it's it, I, meant to, I think, is I that, think so as well. Yes. I'm that person. So now you can easily recapture that recapture. Right. So when I go back to thinking about uh, developing key messages, do all that stuff, do you think most entrepreneurs have a, have the ability to be an expert on their subject? Or do you think that there's some that should and some that shouldn't? So this becomes an interesting question because um, I, I don't want to ever be biased on, on an answer. and and I But I struggle with this because of, so one of the books I'm planning to work on, and I probably shouldn't share the title, but I will, uh, is Instant Expert. Mm-hmm. And so what's my girlfriend gets fascinated by this because she knows my rant. My only, I don't have many rants. My rant is when people call themselves certain things that yes. clearly they're not. And when I say that, I don't judge people. Not authentic. Yeah. And I'd never go to somebody and say, you got to change this or I don't like this. It's just when I see it, I'm like, ah, really? And an example would be calling yourself a sought after speaker when you're struggling to get bookings and trying hard to get them. And you only have three in a year. Like to me, that's not authentic. So call yourself a professional speaker. If you've been paid once to me, you're a professional speaker once you've been paid, but don't say sought after if you're not sought after to me, sought after is either a people are reaching out and saying, can we hire you to speak? Or if you want to go real nuts, Let's Brown, who gets 670 some invitations paid to speak when he can only do probably 100 in a year. I think the number he told me is 670. I'm going by memory, but it was well over what you could do in a year physically. Yeah, he would definitely fit the sought after category. 100%. And I do think you can be, you can say sought after if you have like 20 people a year reaching out and saying, Wendy, can we hire you to speak? That's still sought after because people are, see- are seeking you. But there's people calling themselves that that have never had somebody reach out ever and say, will you speak for us? So, so I only say this because uh, for me, it's about, so this goes back to your point about expert. So this work is tricky because I think you have to have achieved it. And I think you can learn to become it. But the catch is at what point are you faking it till you make it versus actually being there? So what what I get at, what I'm getting at here is I'm going to give you an example. So with our Blue Talks brand, so you mentioned it off the top. We have this brand where we get people on stages that I, I call us like the mix between chicken soup for the soul and TEDx. So I said, we're like their love child. If you if they got together and had a baby. And so what we do is we get people on live stages, you know, and very prestigious stages. Like we bring our events to places like uh, Stanford and UCLA and what have you. And um, we get people in book series. We get people on podcasts on virtual stages, and we get people uh, to share the bill with some really big names as well. And so it's not abnormal, and you and I have talked about this, within a few months for somebody that's uh, worked with us to have spoken on a really big prestigious stage, to have a video of them speaking, to have an as seen on banner saying they've been on Apple, Roku, Amazon, what have you, to co-write a book with a really big name author, to share the bill with some really big name thought leaders. So now in the eyes of a client who arrives at their website, they're an expert. So meaning they're an instant expert because as soon as, soon as you get there, if, if by the way, if they got all that stuff and never put it on their website and you went there today and looked at the website and then tomorrow you go there and all that stuff's there, they're an instant expert. And the reason I say that is they've uh, they've done studies to show that your credibility increases 70% in a client's eyes if you just have an as seen on banner. So my point is, it depends on how you ask the question, Wendy. So if you're saying, can, a per, can any entrepreneur become an expert? My answer is yes, unequivocally. Now, but it's become an expert in the eyes of others. But yes. the deeper question there is, can they actually become an expert? So what I'm getting at is that, for example, somebody that we're helping do all those things I told you about, they got all that in their website. And let's say they decide after we help them get that stuff, that what they're going to do is coach other people how to speak or coach other people how to do that stuff. Let's say they 
three weeks ago or whatever, three months ago, they had never done any of those things that I just mentioned. And now we have all those things in our bio. And now they're using that to say, I'm going to help you do the same. Mm. To me, you're not an expert yet. No. Like when I'm doing it, this is a guy, you know, and I don't mean this in a me ink way, because by the way, there's a lot of areas I'm very deficient, but you know, I've spoken over 3000 times in stages. I've done multiple TEDx talks. I've coached over a thousand speakers. I've uh, been on, I don't know the number of uh, interviews, but between the ones I've done and been on, it's been probably 10,000. And so I feel like I put in the work to be and I don't even, the expert term is hard even still for me to say, but I put, cause I'm from a small town, but I put in the work to, to achieve that and be at that, that level, let's say. And so I struggle with saying that any entrepreneur be, can become an expert because there's two sides of it. There's one is the expert in the side of everybody else. And we help you get that. But the, the plan is that you also are going to either become an expert in your area or in most cases, they're already an expert. Like for example, you're going to speak on our stage and you're already an expert in your area. And so to me, um, you've already done the work on the front end. Some other people will get a lot of that stuff we give them, but can I be honest and blunt? They're still going to fall hard if they try to fake the expertise side. You still have to put in the 10,000 hours. So do I think, and here's, I'll finish this off because I know I've really went deep on this, but I think, Anybody can position themselves as an expert, first of all. Now, that doesn't mean that's a good or a bad thing. And I will say, I think most people, if they put in the time, can become the expert. Now, the thing you asked, the key words that I paid attention to was, should everybody be an expert? And that's where it gets hard for me to say, because I don't think everybody should be an entrepreneur. And I feel bad saying that because I also tell people, do what you love, figure out what it is that's your purpose, you're calling and do it every day. But for some people, you might have to do that for somebody else. Like you and I, I mean, the the percentage of entrepreneurs uh, that fail, I don't know that it's improved any over the years. Like we we hear the number, what is it like 90% or 80% of entrepreneurs fail in the first five years? Like I haven't looked at any studies that's shown that's improved any. And I don't don't know that it will because how much more, like how much more access to information do we need? Like what's going to, what's it going to take? And the only thing that could happen is you could get a lot more people that study with people that know what they're doing. But at the same time, as we've seen over the years, most companies won't invest in that. So I don't know that that we can shift enough to change that. So if 90% of people fail at business, and then what, I don't know, Wendy, if you know the numbers, but what are the percentage that keep trying and keep failing until eventually they achieve? Like maybe out of that 90% that fail, some of them still stick with it. Maybe 30% eventually achieve success in a different business. But I'm going to say a large percentage, probably over 50%, never succeed at business and go back to working for somebody else. So- it, it's cold to say, but I think some people aren't meant to be entrepreneurs. So then I'll also go one step further and say some people probably aren't meant to be experts. Okay, that's cool. Oh, so I just Googled that, Corey. One in five businesses fail after five years. 30% survive after 10. So there so, you go. There you go. Well, that's interesting perspective. And, you know, there's the quali- there's quantitative information. Hey, you need an accountant. Hey, you need to do this. Here's the steps. But I think what was highlighted in our conversation, Corey, there's this untapped into side of being an entrepreneur where you need to show up with courage and you need to, you know, be more invested in building future you than the fear of what could happen to today's you. 100%. I I forget what the quote says, but something to the effect of what would future me do? And and I, I think of that a lot, like be that be the person that future you would love, you know, be the person that future you would cheer on and say, I wish I was that guy. That to me is, I think, 
that's where the real money is because honestly, it's what we're trying to become. And I think we put too much focus on where we are now. Now I say that, I mean, we got to live in the moment. We got to appreciate where we are. And I don't want to have people that are completely into living in the now, you know, the power of now coming to me saying, well, you know, you should be grateful for what you have. That's how you get more of it. What have you agree with all that. And at the same time, I think we still need to understand we're going to, hopefully we're going to keep growing until we die. So we're going to become a better version of ourselves at all times. And if you could think of how exciting that's going to be, while also goes back full circle to what we said earlier, while also enjoying the journey of getting there, that's mm. where, that's where it all comes together. I will say as a, a complete side note, uh, I've asked this time machine question, which I'll probably ask you when I interview you, Wendy, is um, what would you say to your younger self if you could jump into a time machine and go back and talk to her based on what you've learned in the year since? And what I will tell you, the spoiler alert, I have a TEDx talk on this so people can watch it if they want. It's so five minutes. It's my shortest TEDx talk. But the spoiler alert is this. Most people would tell themselves, do not change a thing. Interestingly, the same thing that we are stressing to the point of hating our life right now is the thing that won't matter in probably 10 months, yeah. let alone 10 years. And what our future selves know is uh, most cases, I mean, it's not always this way, but a lot of future selves go. I like where I am now. So I wouldn't change a thing. I had to go through all those trials that I hated to discover that. And what I, the reason I even started asking that question is because I wondered, what if we were able to learn this sooner? Like, what if we were able to realize our older self would actually not even get in the time machine, by the way? 80 to 90% of the people I follow up and ask, would you get in the time machine? And say no, because I'm scared it would change something. So think about that. Mm. They like what they like themselves or what they've done or where their life is at now. But by the way, mostly it's when they're 50, you know, when they say this or more or older, but they say, you know what? I don't even think I get in the time machine because I'd be scared it would change anything about who I am now. So uh -huh. imagine if we could somehow look at that and say, geez, that's the case almost all the time. What if I were to just realize that today? Now, it won't happen for a large percentage of people, but my hope is over time it'll at least impact some people where they'll go, you know what, 18 year old me, I need to settle down a bit and realize this isn't the end of the world. Because most people's older self would look at this and say, I forgot that even happened. Crazy. Corey, this has been an amazing, amazing conversation. I've really enjoyed it. If you had um, one last thing to, that I didn't ask that you thought my entrepreneurial audience should hear, what would that be? So, you know, I, I, I on one hand, I, I want to say it because we did talk about it, but I want, you know, we, we talked about the idea of expert and we went down that rabbit hole a lot. So I'll just say, even though I said, you know, not everybody can or should become an expert. What I will say is if you're going to go down that path, then find a way to build your credibility in front of your clients, because I find a lot of people, and we talked with this, I think off air, but a lot of people have all these great achievements that they never tell anybody. Maybe they're embarrassed to tell people or maybe they think it's, it'll come across as I'm bragging or what have you. But if some, if you don't tell anybody, nobody knows. And so even like uh, as a tip, your email signature, what do you have on there? And yeah. you know, if you've been featured in Forbes, that should be on your email signature. And whatever that looks like, you might change it up from time to time, but it's your best real estate you'll ever have that most people don't use. So I would say it's worth building the credibility in the eyes of your clients and then leveraging it. But as we said earlier, do the work. You still need to become the expert. So because that's really short, because we kind of already did cover that, the thing we didn't cover that I would tell people is as early as you can, if you haven't already done this, discover what your purpose is. Yeah. Everything changed in my life whenever. Now, for me, I always say the gateway to purpose is passion. So mm -hmm. 
passion to me is what you do. Purpose is why you're doing it. I find very few people discover why I'm doing this until they discover what they're doing that that makes them excited about that. And your passion could change a hundred times. Purpose rarely changes a lot. So for me, early on, that stand-up comedy I thought was my passion. Then it became speaking. Then it became writing. But what I've discovered over time is my purpose is to create a positive ripple in the lives of everybody I come in contact with. That's my why. And I have various platforms, so passions, to get it out there to people. But the reason I bring this up, Wendy, is I've talked about purpose and passion, whichever P you want to use, as being a thing I call vitamin P. And it's the only vitamin you can't buy in the store. Yeah. And it's the most important vitamin you'll ever take in your life. reason I say that is most of the people I know that live on purpose are happier more often. People want to be around them more. They get excited more. They get sick less. Uh, if they work somewhere, they don't go into work. Uh, they don't call in sick as often. They don't get stressed as often. And I could go on and list probably 50 things. To me, that's a powerful vitamin, you know, and it changed everything. So real world talk, uh, whenever I was in my mid-20s, I battled anxiety first and then hypochondria, each for about two years. Now, the anxiety continued on through hypochondria, so I guess it was four years. But I had anxiety crippling anxiety for years. And then uh, for about two years, I had hypochondria. For those that don't know what that is, it meant every disease I read about, I started developing yeah. symptoms. And so I had that and it was debilitating. I mean, it was ruining my life. Ironically, it doesn't even affect uh, sales performance and success because I was having the best years of my life from a, from a sales point of view while I was dying inside. Right. So bring all this up because you know, whenever it disappeared, I started performing stand-up comedy one night. I went into work the next day and the guy's I met said, did you meet someone? Because you got a new jump in your step. And then I realized that there was something there. And I kept leaning into that. And over the course of about three months, my hypochondria disappeared and has never come back since. Now, I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to make a promise that that can happen for somebody else. But to me, all the benefits of finding your passion and living on purpose outweigh the benefits of not doing it. So if I had a message to people, there's lots of ways to do this. But figure out what your passion is and figure out what your purpose is and start living on purpose. Thank you so much, Corey. And I think the real bottom line is what you just said now is purpose and passion are the fuel that will get you through fear, will give you courage, and will help you enjoy more of your day to day. Thanks so much, Corey. 100%. Thanks so much, Wendy. Hey, growth-oriented business owners, are you ready to take your business to new heights and connect with like-minded entrepreneurs? I would like to introduce you to the Elite Growth Community, your ticket to a world of learning, sharing, strategizing, and problem-solving. Our monthly live events will bring together successful business owners just like you, who are making over six figures and have been in the game for at least two years. And the best part? Your first event is absolutely free. So try it out and see if it's the right fit for you. And after that, for just $17 a month, you'll unlock unlimited access to our exclusive community where you can accelerate your business growth like never before. No commitments, month to month. Don't miss out on this amazing opportunity to join the Elite Growth Community at blackstarwealth.com backslash elite. Sign up today and watch your business soar to a new heights. That's blackstarwealth.com backslash E-L-I-T-E. Hope to see you soon.